Now it is time for the conversation and the actual calling. And so basically God is going to begin to explain to Moses what he wants him to do. And then Moses is going to ask a series of five questions slash make five statements. And God is going to give his responses to those. And so basically Moses is going to very politely say, I don't like this until eventually he removes his politeness and just says, I'm not doing this, to which God doesn't allow that answer. So it's kind of where we're going. So in verse 4, it says, When Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to look, God called him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. And God said, Do not approach any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he added, I am Yahweh. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses said to his face, because, um, sorry, and Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So the Moses of Moses is a ter- term of endearment. To repeat that twice doesn't mean that he thinks Moses is deaf, um, but that it's just a term of endearment that, um, that was used in the ancient culture. So he comes before God, the holy ground, and God begins with, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but basically what he's doing there is he's invoking the Abrahamic covenant. Um, the Abrahamic covenant was started with Abraham, and then it was carried on by his descendants. The Abrahamic covenant was specifically, is the most important covenant in the entire First Testament. It is the whole basis for God's plan for humanity. And it is in the Abrahamic covenant that the new covenant that Christ is going to make in the upper room is going to be rooted into and firmly established on. And in that covenant, God is basically coming to a bunch of people at the Tower of Babel who have decided that they're going to build their own kingdom at the expense of everybody else. Because when the kingdom of man establishes itself, we establish ourselves by taking from other people and killing them to get what we want in order to make ourselves more powerful. I mean, every nation does that. But God then takes one of these scattered men from the Tower of Babel and pulls him out and says, you don't have to take from other people to make your name great. I'm going to give you a land of blessing, and I'm going to make your great name great, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be overflowing with blessings to the entire world. And so God's idea is completely reversed. You don't take in order to get blessings. I give you blessings so that you can give blessings to other people. And that's God's ultimate goal for all of us in the expansion of the kingdom of God. So by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only is he saying, I am the God of this covenant, these promises, this revolutionary idea of how to build kingdoms, but he's also saying, I am the God of people. Most of the time, gods were known as the God of the sun, the God of the storm, the God of the sea, the God of the grain. But God is saying, I'm the God of the people. Not, and not that no other pagan religion had any concept of God of the people. Kunum, the Ramhead God of the Egyptian, was considered the creator of the humans, but not in an intimate relational kind of a sense. They might have been the God of people, as in they ruled over people and they made people, but not as the God of people, as in I'm among you and I'm part of you and I want to be with you and dwell with you. And that's what God is saying, because this Abrahamic covenant was implemented in a, with a God who actually walked with Abraham and Abraham walked with him. And so these are the two things that God immediately starts the conversation off. And basically, he's also implying, I'm also the God that honors these promises. I'm also the God that honors these promises. 
And so he comes to him and he tells him this. Verse 7, And Yahweh said, I, will sh- I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a land that is both good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now indeed... The cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have also seen how severely the Egyptians have oppressed them. So now go, and I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So not only has he invoked this title, I am the God of people, I am the God of promises, I am the God who is with you, I am the God of the covenant, but he is also stating here, this is the reason I'm going to action. I'm going to action because... I have heard my people's cries. I have heard their complaints. And I am moved to compassion. And so here you see a God of compassion. And you see, we already talked about why he waited so long. It wasn't because he was forgetful or he didn't care or he wanted them to be abused for a certain point. He waited so long because they weren't ready. And the land of Canaan wasn't ready to be taken yet. So what he's saying is, I am a God of compassion. I actually care. And this is revolutionary. No other God would care about people like this. There is no other God in the entire universe that cares about people in this way, that they would sacrifice their own interests, so to speak, in order to step down into this world and put up with these kind of people. Um, because that's the other thing you need, you need to understand something is, this isn't just a loving, compassionate God who loves you so much, because when he looks at you, he just thinks, wow, you're a beautiful snowflake that I just can't live without. When we get to the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, God's like, I'm tired of this. I do, I, the, you people are stiff-necked and you're evil and I, I'm not going to go with you anymore. And Jesus, even the Jesus that loved the little children and the tax collectors, even says, how much longer must I put up with you people? And that actually demonstrates the love of God even more. Okay, he's not oblivious and blind to who we are. And it's kind of like being a parent. There's so much about them that you just want to wring their necks. But at the same time, you can't help but love them. And so this is what God is saying. I have seen them. I have heard them. It's breaking my heart. And I can't help but act. And I'm coming. And you're going to be my man, Moses. I'm calling you to go. And so there's a divine command here. You are to go. So that's a very important to understand because any hem-hawing and hesitation that Moses has is automatically direct disobedience to God. The minute he gives him a command and the minute Moses hesitates, that's lack of faith, that's disobedience. There's no candy coating it or whitewashing it. It is what it is. And so he calls them to go to his people. Now he says this, that not only does he want to save his people, but he wants to bring his people to a land that is spacious. Lots of room for them to expand in, like expanding the Garden of Eden. But not just that, but a land flowing with milk and honey. Now at first this seems like it's a candy land kind of a picture. And when I was a little kid, I actually thought like, candy land? Um, Because little kids interpret everything literally. Um, But it's not that. The idea is... They're not an overly sugared country. (laughs) They're not pumped up on sugar and sweets all the time like you and I are. Sweets are rare. 
Okay, anything beyond bread is pretty rare. Rare. They eat meat only at festivals. Typically, they have bread most of the time, and during certain seasons, they'll get dates and figs, and that's as sweet as it good. Which those are pretty sweet, but not sugary like we are. But milk is very sweet. It's very rare because um, it mostly comes from goats and a few cow cows out there. And if you've ever had milk straight from the cow, it's way sweeter than that watered-down, boiled, pasteurized stuff in the grocery store, which is not even real milk anymore. And honey, if you've ever had raw honey, raw honey is amazing. And so what he's saying is this, I'm going to give you something sweet. And what he's saying is something rich. It's not just life in a survival sense, like grain. It is life in abundance. It's the things that you can afford because you're not trying to survive. You're not just trying to eat and keep put food on the table. It's the things that you're able to supply because you have an abundance of the things that you need. And you actually can sit back and relax and enjoy this. And you don't have to worry about going back to the farm or what's my checking account doing paying for this honey. And so basically what he's doing is I'm going to give you life to the fullest. I'm going to give you a rich life. I'm going to give you a life of rest. But the other thing that it says is this. Where do you get honey? You get it from flowers, which is provided by the rain, which only comes from God. Where do you get milk? You get it from the cows. You eat the grass or the goats. And it only comes from the rain, which only comes from God. And when we get to Deuteronomy, God's going to make it very clear. If you obey me, I will provide the rains. And you will have the fruit of the land. But if you disobey me, one of the first things that happens is famine. It's like the first thing you do with your kids is time out. And then it escalates from there. And that's what God is saying. Famine first, and then if you continue to disobey, it will escalate. And so what he's saying is this. Not only do I want to richly bless you with this sense of richness and the fullness of life and rest, but it only comes with obedience. If you obey me, this land will produce an abundance. And they know it because about a year, two years from now, they're going to enter the promised land and they're going to bring back clusters of grape that are the height of a man and bigger than your arms can get around. Not that the grapes are huge, but the clusters are huge because the abundance of the crop is a thousand times fold. And so when they see that, this statement should pop in their head. This is a land of abundance. This is the land that freely gives, just like the garden. And this is what God is saying. This is what I want to create for you, the garden. But it's dependent upon a relationship of obedience. And as Deuteronomy will later go on, an obedience that comes from a love for God and not because I have to. And so this is what God is saying. This is my intention. This is my idea. I'm going to bring you out of slavery, and I'm going to bring you to that. But that is based on bondage to me. And once again, that's that major theme, from bondage to bondage, but from bad bondage to good bondage. And so this land is going to have to have the depossessing of the original owners there. And that's hinted at here, but will not be fully developed until a little bit later in other books. So this is God's plan. And on the surface, you would think, wow, that sounds really good. No more slavery. A God that's talking to me? Never has any God ever talked to Moses or anybody else that he's ever known? I mean, when Abraham, 
Abraham experienced this. God came to him out of the blue, spoke to him, made promises to him, and the first thing that Abraham did was he went. God now comes to him. And this is an unknown God. Moses has the stories from his mother. Abram didn't know this God at all. But Moses does from the stories. He's seen the plan. He knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows his names. He knows the stories. He knows his God. This God comes and speaks to him. He's a reject that has failed so many ways. And now he comes to him and promises all this. And Moses says, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He replied, surely I will be with you. So that's his excuse. Who am I? Now, in some ways, this is a, I don't feel like I'm worthy to do this, which is interesting because when God first came to Abram, he never said that. When he came to Jacob, Jacob, it went totally over his head. When he came to Joseph, Joseph responded. But Moses is going to respond with, I'm not worthy. I'm not capable of doing this. And that's going to be a response of a lot of people after Moses, Gideon and Saul. And you're going to start seeing that more and more. And it's interesting that the more God has been revealed to the people, the more they actually think that they're not capable of doing it. And I don't know if there's like some sermon in there or something, but I think that's interesting. So he says, who am I? So it's partly a, I don't think I'm worthy and I don't think I'm capable. But part of it is too a plight. Way in the ancient world it is not uncommon to reject something, and we talked about this a little bit last week. So, if somebody invites you to home and offers you tea, you say, "Oh no, I couldn't," and then they offer again, and you say, "Oh no, I can't," and then they offer again, and then you can accept on the third time. It's this ritual that they do, and so in the ancient Near East, they always like reject it for a few times. In America, we're like, "Heck yeah, free food!" Okay, we just take it. Um, but back then, they're more they're more polite. Hospitality and this exchange is important. So it's partly that. It's the polite custom of refusing it. But he's not just saying, oh, I couldn't. He's saying, who am I? And that shows it's a little bit deeper than that in his rejection. So that is his first response comes with God's first answer. Yahweh replied, surely I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you and they will serve God on this mountain. So God's answer is, it doesn't matter who you are. All that matters is, I am with you. That's all that matters. I was with Abram. I was with Isaac. I was with Jacob. I was with jo- Joseph. I am with you. That's all that matters. Notice that he doesn't go into, but Moses, I have so equipped you for this. You're the perfect person. The Egyptian education, the story from your parents, that's all true, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he has the lowest IQ or the highest IQ. All that matters is I am with you. I am with you. That's all that matters. And that's the most important thing. And so notice this says two things about God. It says that he's capable of handling anything as a sovereign God but it also shows that he is actually an intimate God who's involved in the lives of the people. And more importantly than that, as he will say in Psalm 93, I am your helper. That he wants to not only be in your life, but he wants to help you. He wants to equip you. He wants you to do it. And so this is his response. And that's important to understand because Moses has got four more complaints. And every single time, God's just going to simply say, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Like, 
You don't have to say anything more. I've already given you the answer. That's enough. And that's all that matters. That's his answer to every single complaint, every single rejection, because that's the only answer that matters, is that God is with him. But he says, this will be the sign to you. You will come out of Egypt with my people, and you will worship me as a nation at this mountain. Now, on the surface, you think, that's not a very good sign. How am I supposed to trust that you're with me after I've already supposedly done all this? <laughs> like, typically, it's like, okay, prove to me that you're with me, and you give a proof, and then you go. But God says, just go, and then I'll prove it to you that I'm with you. The sign is not like I'm trying to prove to you right now that I'm with you because one, you have the stories from your parents and two, I'm kind of in front of you in this big burning bush right now. That should be evidence enough. Like how many other people have ever had this experience with a God? But it's a confirmation sign. It's the sign that God gives saying you finished the race, so to speak. It's kind of like saying that's the finish line down there. When you break through the tape, Everything is good. Everything is accomplished. Everything is where I want it to be. And so that's what he's saying. I'm with you. It is obvious I'm with you right now. And you will know when you've accomplished my task when we're back at this mountain as a nation. Basically, it's saying that's the goal. That's the race. That's where we want to be. This is it. And notice how he says, and you will serve me. That's that same word that they served Egypt and slavery. But now God is saying, you will serve me as liberated people with rich land flowing with milk and honey. It's a totally different picture of slavery that God is presenting here. And so this is what God promises him. 